I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. This text has come to be known in the history of the church as the Benedictus, the Latin for the word blessed with which the text begins. It's Zechariah's hymn of praise, and we want to look at it this morning. But first, some background. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a priest by the name of Zechariah, and he had a wife whose name was Elizabeth. She was of the daughters of Aaron. He was of the division of Abijah. They were both righteous, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, Luke tells us, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. But God, desiring to demonstrate his mercy on the brokenhearted and that nothing human can stand in the way of his resolves to be good, sends the mighty angel Gabriel to Zechariah. And Gabriel says to him, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and he will be great. And he will drink no wine or any strong drink, but... He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go out in the power of Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and he will prepare a people for the Lord. And Zechariah could not believe his ears. And he said as much, and that made Gabriel angry. And Gabriel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God Almighty, and he sent me here to bring you this good news, and you will be speechless until it comes to pass, because you did not believe the words that I spoke to you, which will have their fulfillment in their time. And nine months later, the time came, and Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, and at his circumcision, they were about to name him Zechariah. That is, the neighbors were. And Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And they turned to Zechariah, and Zechariah wrote on a pad, because he still couldn't talk, his name is John. And all of a sudden, his tongue was loosed, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up for them a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be released or freed from all our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us in the remembrance of the mercy that he promised to the fathers and to remember the covenant and the oath that he made with our father Abraham to grant us that we, being freed from all our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. And you, child, addressing John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the Most High God, and you will go before the Lord and prepare a people to give the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins 
from the mercy, the tender mercies of God by which the day will dawn from on high and give light to all who sit in darkness, who stand in the shadow of death, and he will lead our feet into the ways of peace. Zechariah had nine months of silence to get ready for that hymn. Nine months to ponder and pray and read his Bible, the Old Testament. I think the silence was good for him. It may have been a rebuke from God, but it is, it is such a great thing about God that God always turns his rebukes into rewards for those who keep faith. And that's good news, and I want you to remember that if you're here this morning laboring or groaning under the scars of any past sin. Because God loves to take the scars of sin and turn them into signs of grace. The marks of sin into the memorials of grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Paul taught us. And that's good news. And I love to think about how Zechariah must have struggled in those nine months of silence as he came gradually to understand that this rebuke could also be a reward. On the one hand, saying to himself, Oh, I was so stupid to be so skeptical. What a fool not to believe Gabriel. And on the other side, gradually coming to feel, these are unbelievably stupendous days. These are unrepeatable, remarkably, incredibly significant days in which I'm living. Nine months to ponder that without being able to talk to anybody. And I can't help but take just a moment to imply that to our own situation. And it would be this. If we don't seek silence in these days, I don't think we will ever come to sense the stupendous nature of what God has done at Christmas or what he's doing now in our own lives. It would be a rare thing, wouldn't it, to be gripped and moved by something powerful in a noisy room. There is a close connection between stillness and a sense of the stupendous. The most astonishing things in the world will probably be overlooked by the people who have to have the radio and the TV as constant background noise. Be still and know that I am God. Be deaf, be dumb. I've tried to imagine what it would be like for me if the Lord socked me with nine months of dumbness and deafness. I think Zechariah was also struck deaf because it says in verse 62 they had to make signs to communicate with him. Why didn't they just talk to him? I think he was deaf as well as dumb. Total silence. Would mean for me no preaching, no counseling, no singing, but lots of looking into the eyes of people. Lots of looking into my wife's eyes at the dinner table. Lots of looking into my boy's eyes to make it plain what I was feeling. When was the last time you looked steadily into somebody's eyes quietly? Lots of reading the great books, probably. Lots of touching. 
Lots of writing in my journal. Lots of poems, probably. Lots of letters and thoughts about life. Lots more prayer. Lots of meditation on the word. All in absolute silence. If God should give me a nine-month period like that, I hope I make as much good use of it as Zechariah did. Because Zechariah came out of it filled with the Holy Spirit and singing to the Lord. A song that was profoundly insightful into the ways of God and shot through with a sense of the stupendous significance of what was happening in these days when Jesus was about to be born. So this morning, while we ponder how we might find some silence in these days, it isn't easy, is it? Most of us don't have homes constructed for silence, especially when there are lots of kids around. But while we ponder how we might find some, let's learn from what the Holy Spirit taught Zechariah in his song. Most of Zechariah's song has to do not with his son, John the Baptist, but with the salvation that the Messiah was bringing. Verses 76 and 77 are the only two verses that deal with John the Baptist. He was to go before the Lord and prepare his ways, calling a people to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. That's all. Everything else in the psalm deals with what is about to happen with the coming of the Messiah, with Jesus. Let's look at the beginning. Zechariah begins in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people. Four remarkable observations about this verse, because this verse really sums up the whole song, I think. Number one. This man, nine months ago, could not believe that his wife could have a baby. Now, filled with the Holy Spirit, he is so confident about the redemption that is coming through the Messiah that he puts it in the past tense. God has visited. God has redeemed his people. For the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. And that's the way it was for Zechariah after nine months in silence with the Holy Spirit. Second, the coming of Jesus the Messiah was not merely the visitation of a man. It was the visitation of God. The God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. For centuries, the Jewish people had languished under the conviction that God had withdrawn from them, the chosen people. The spirit of prophecy had ceased with Malachi four centuries ago. Israel had fallen under the hand of cruel Roman overlords. And all the godly were waiting, waiting, waiting for a visitation from God. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 25, the godly Simeon, it says of him, he is looking for the consolation of Israel. And a prayerful Anna in verse 38 of chapter 2. She is looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The days were days of great expectation. And now it is given to Zechariah to understand that the waiting is over. The time has come. And God was going to visit his people. But in a way that nobody 
was expecting. Third, he is coming to redeem his people. Now, we must be very careful here if we're to appreciate what Zechariah is saying. We must not pour into this word redeem everything we know about redemption through the death of Christ from the Apostle Paul. In all likelihood, Zechariah means something different. It took Jesus years to get into the heads of his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and die, and then on the third day rise again. They couldn't get it through their heads, and there's no reason to think that Zechariah had it through his head either. There had been hints in the Old Testament, hadn't there? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But the Jews of Jesus' day, they could not grasp it. A dying Messiah made no sense. What Zechariah probably had in mind when he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed, was the same thing Moses had in mind when he quoted God in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Moses says concerning the deliverance of the people from Egypt, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Zechariah, no doubt, is hoping in his day that the Israel of his day will be delivered from their oppressive Roman overlords and that the Messiah, the king of David or the son of David, will rule on earth over this national group called Israel. It simply has not been revealed to Zechariah that this deliverance would not happen at the first coming of the Messiah, but only at the second coming. And nevertheless, there are some signs in this hymn that the redemption that the Messiah was bringing was more than national liberation or political deliverance. The fourth thing to notice about verse 68 is this. God has visited and redeemed his people. It's the consolation of Israel for which Simeon was waiting. It's the God, the Lord of Israel, who was coming to redeem his people. The people in view here are the people of Israel. This was the chosen nation. This is the people to whom the promises had been made. Now, God had in view the whole world, but he aimed to get at the whole world by coming through the nation Israel first. So that Jesus says in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But... Just like there are clues in Zechariah's song that the redemption was going to be more than national, more than political, so there are clues that the people who will be the beneficiaries of this redemption are more than Israelites. That's the way Zechariah begins his song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. Now, verse 69. He tells us how the Lord is going to visit and redeem his people. 
God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, he's talking there about Jesus, not John the Baptist, because John was not of the house of David. Jesus was. Jesus is the horn of salvation. Now, that's been an exciting image for me to ponder this week. It's a new Christmas image for me that I had not ever thought of before. And I want to make as much as I can of it this morning. Jesus is the horn of salvation. The word horn does not mean a musical instrument here. It means the deadly weapon of the wild ox. And I'll try to show you this from the Old Testament. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called a horn. And so we have to go to the Old Testament background, no doubt where Zechariah got his information to find out what it means. In Psalm 92, verses 9 and 10, we are given a picture of a horn like this. For lo, thy enemies, O Lord, for lo, thy enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be shattered, but thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. In other words, the horn of the psalmist is the symbol of his strength and his victory over his enemies. Micah, the prophet, chapter 4, verse 13. God says to Jerusalem, Arise, thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. The horn is is a weapon in this case, not an instrument. I used to watch Rawhide on television when I was growing up, and probably only those over, I don't know what age, remember Rawhide. Rawhide always began with a stampede of cattle. With, and most of them had these long horns, Texas longhorns. I was never impressed with the size and the strength of a steer until I came to Minnesota and went to the state fair six years ago and went into that place to that stall and saw what a steer looks like. He's the, his back is as high as my head and his head is higher yet and those horns, his neck is big around as a barrel and I, every time I go, I get kind of weak knees and say to myself, what if that animal got angry? He would just make shreds out of that little stall. So it's not hard to imagine, is it, what an ancient Near Eastern man who didn't have any car or tank or motor, how the ox with his horns became a symbol of strength and a means of victory in conflict. Verse 70 in Psalm, I mean in Luke 1, says that this horn of salvation was prophesied from of old. Probably the clearest example of that is Psalm 132, verse 13, where God says about Jerusalem, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. We've all heard about the stump of Jesse and a branch shall come forth from the stump. Here you've got a horn that grows forth from
from Jerusalem, and I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. When a horn sprouts and it is made like iron, the enemies of that horn better fear. But in the Old Testament, it was, it was God who fought the enemies of the Israelites. It was God who got the victory. And therefore, it's not surprising that in the only two places in the Old Testament where the phrase horn of salvation, which we have here in Luke 1, occurs, the only two places it refers to God. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, and Psalm 18, verse 2, both of which record exactly the same psalm, which was the psalm David sang after he had been delivered from his enemy, Saul. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and he is the horn of my salvation. He is my defense, my shield, and he is my offense, my deadly horn by which I can rend my enemies like the wild ox. He is the horn of salvation in that he uses his weapon to protect and to save his people. And that brings us back to Luke chapter 1 verse 69. Jesus is now the horn of salvation because he is a deadly weapon. He has a tremendous power, which according to verse 71, he uses to save his people from their enemies and from all who hate them. Now, Zechariah probably means that primarily to refer to the destruction of the Roman overlords and the liberation of the people Israel and the gathering of a people into Israel and the ruling over them of the Messiah. On earth. And indeed, he will at his second coming. But Zechariah's words imply that there is more to this battle, there is more to this conflict than merely political liberation for the nation Israel. Verses 74 and 75 are, I think, the crucial verses in understanding what the horn of salvation will achieve. These show that the goal of God's redemption in raising up the horn of salvation is to grant that we, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, that's just the starting point, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's aim in raising up a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate the oppressed nation Israel, but to create a people who are holy and righteous and who serve the Lord without any fear because they trust in him. Now, that means that the redemption spoken of it back in verse 68 must include redemption from fear and redemption from unrighteousness. And it implies that ultimately the people who are to be the beneficiaries of this redemption are anybody who are not enemies of the Messiah and who through faith in him are holy and righteous and without fear 
before their enemies. So even though Zechariah is thinking primarily of a national liberation of the people Israel, his own view of things under the guidance of the Holy Spirit necessarily implies that there is a battle to be waged and a transformation to happen which is more than national, more than political. It is spiritual. And that, to me, is tremendously important for us who are yet waiting for the second coming of the Messiah and his final victory on earth. If the goal of God's redemption is to be achieved, And that goal is to gather a people who are fearless and who are righteous. If that goal is to be achieved, then the horn of salvation must conquer fear and must conquer unrighteousness. And the good news of Zechariah's hymn is that he has come to do just that. The good news of Christmas is that that has been, past tense, has been achieved. If someone had given me last Christmas a super-duper mousetrap, I would not have been very impressed at all. We didn't have, I never saw a mouse in six years at uh, our old house. If somebody gave me a guaranteed-to-catch-em super-duper mousetrap this Christmas, I would be very glad because we have many mice and I can't catch them. Come to the open house anyway. (laughs) Tried three different kinds. If you offered me late some night after the evening service a quick ride to the emergency room at the Metropolitan Medical Center, I kind of look at you funny, think you were strange. Unless I saw the big gash in my arm or felt the severe pain in my abdomen. If the police screeched up beside me on my way home one night there on 15th Street and said, get in the back, I'd think they were putting me on. Unless I saw up around the corner the armed gang waiting, hiding. That's the way it is in all of life. We will not appreciate a gift which we don't think meets any needs or fulfills no desires. We do not value or long for any help unless we know we're sick or in grave danger of some enemy. Vast numbers of people think that Jesus Christ and the story of Christmas is a Mickey Mouse trap. And of no use whatsoever to them. A crazy trip to the emergency room. A bothersome pickup by the ornery police. Because they don't believe they're sick to death with the disease of unforgiven sin. And they don't think they have a massive enemy in Satan who is against all God's people. They just don't believe it. And so the horn of salvation is a toy to be played with at best. But not for me. The horn of salvation for me is my only hope of recovery from this disease of my soul called sin. And he's the only hope of victory over my greatest enemy, Satan. 
And there is a real disease. There is a real disease. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And the wages of sin is death. And there is a real enemy, isn't there? Your adversary, the devil, Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. He is the God of this world, Paul says, that blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of the grace of God in the face of Christ. So there is a deadly disease and there is a dangerous enemy. And every one of us will die of that disease and we will be destroyed and devoured by that enemy if we do not have a horn of salvation. Blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. By the mouth of his holy prophets, he has prophesied it in order that we might be saved from our enemies, from all those who hate us, including the greatest enemy of all. And you, child, will be prophet of the Most High, and you will go before him to prepare his ways and to give the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Those two things are what make Christmas good news and great joy to all the people who believe. 1 John 3.8 This is the reason that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 9.26 Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Fear and guilt, the two great spoilers of Christmas, the two great spoilers of life all through the year, have been done away by the coming of our horn of salvation. Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus Christ took on a human nature in order that he might, through death, Destroy him who has the power of death, even the devil, and free all those who through fear of death have been subject to lifelong bondage. And through that same death, he paid the whole debt for sin so that we are freed from the evil one and we are freed from sin. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has redeemed his people who has raised up a horn of salvation that we, being delivered from all of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. One last thing. Satan may be viewed as a lion going around prowling, seeking to devour every one of God's children. But the truth is that any of God's children who take refuge in the horn of salvation cannot be destroyed by him. Let me close with a picture of that. This is a picture. If I was an artist, I would paint for myself a big oil canvas, just huge as I could make it. And I'd hang it in my living room, very near the manger scene, if I could find a spot on the wall for it. 
And this is what I'd put in it for a Christmas message. It would be a scene of a distant hill, barren. And behind it, the sun is about to rise. And the rays shoot up and out of the picture. And on that hill, silhouetted, very dark, almost black, is a magnificent wild ox. And he stands with his back about seven feet tall. And the crown of his head is nine feet tall. And out of either side of his head comes a magnificent and massive horn curving out and up, six feet long on either side, 12 inches thick at the base. And he stands sovereignly and serenely facing south with his head slightly cocked and impaled on the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion dead. That's what I want you to think at Christmas time. 